Good morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're here. No matter where you're watching from, if you're live in the auditorium or you're able to join us virtually, we're glad that you're part of the service today. Uh, quick shout out to a church uh, south of Ann Arbor in Manchester for the benefit of people who are here, normally part of New Hope. Um, a church called Victory Church south of Ann Arbor. Their pastor wasn't able to teach today, so they're streaming our service, so they're joining us in this service today. It's great to have you part of what we're doing. Um, yeah, awesome. And I kind of thought on that note, I would encourage you if you watch weekly, um, virtually, if you're up in the Upper Peninsula or you're out in Texas or maybe in California and you're watching alone, consider next time inviting a family member or, or a friend to come and join you and be part of what God's doing here at New Hope. We're just really thrilled with the way God's working among us. Um, on that thought, I want to encourage you, if you haven't given us updated information about your contact information, I would encourage you to do that today. You're going to find in front of your seat, if you're not in the front row, um, there's little connection cards. And Kyle, who leads the financial program here, he's getting ready to send out year-end statements about the giving that took place over the last year. And make sure that we have your most current contact information. So use one of these little cards this morning, drop it in the offering box on your way out, and that way we'll make sure we have all the details that we need to have. I would love to pray with you before we step into Genesis 41, and I'm just going to give you a heads up. What you're about to hear in the first five minutes or so, you're going to feel like it's completely disconnected from Joseph's story in Genesis 41. I promise you it's not. Just indulge me and, and stay with me for the first five minutes. I'll, I'll make sure you understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. But first, let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for every single soul who is part of this service. Whether we're in a living room or we're in another church building or we're right here in this auditorium, we know that your Holy Spirit is present and that you steward over our lives. And because of our relationship with you, you want us to know you better, and so you've given us your word. And that we would be able to understand you would require the work of the Holy Spirit, God. So we ask that you would fill us with understanding through the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us insight. What I'm asking for, Father, specifically is that you would cause your word to come alive now. Show us how to apply this to our life. Use it in the midst of our week when we interact with our social circle, with our family, with our coworkers. Use it, God, that we might advance the name of Jesus, that we might come to know you better. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name. And all God's people said, amen. If you're new to church, you've probably not heard the word condescension in relation to God. If you've been around New Hope for any length of time, you've heard me use it in relation to God, but I want to explain why I'm about to use it this way. Most people, when they hear the word condescending, think of it as being an, an insulting term in the sense that someone's so condescending. But in theological circles, when the word condescension is used of God, it's speaking of God lowering Himself. And there's no passage that captures it better than Philippians chapter 2, when it describes God the Son taking on the mantle or becoming flesh and condescending to become one of us. Let me take you there on the screen. You'll see this in Philippians 2.5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Here it comes, this is the condescension, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's an incredibly complicated theological concept that's been written in human terms in the best way that Paul could describe it so that we could wrap our mind around what happened when God the Son became Jesus the man. And like I said, if you've been around New Hope for any length of time, you've heard me use that phrase before. God the Son became Jesus the man, and we tend to think that way at Christmas time. We think of God incarnating and becoming one of us. That's what Philippians 2 is describing, that we're being called to have that same attitude in which we would be willing to give up the things that are precious to us in order to accomplish what God's objective is. God the Son in Philippians 2, becoming Jesus the man, is describing the incarnation. But long before Bethlehem, long before shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night, long before Mary got a visit from an angel telling her that she was highly favored, there was a surrender in heaven. And I don't mean in terms of, I surrender, I give. That's definitely not what I'm implying, and I don't want you to think that way. But rather, theologically speaking, and theology is the study of God, theologically speaking, the Bible describes the mindset of God the Son when we're told that He did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. And Paul said, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should have that same attitude. Look at me again at the screen at three words. Have this attitude. If you picked up the notes on the way in this morning, or maybe you downloaded them, you see a Greek word in your notes. It's phreneo. It's also on the screen right now. Phreneo is describing something that is very intense. An intensive thought. If you're an athlete, you're focused on that thing that is precious to you as an athlete, and you train, and you prepare, and you dedicate lots of time to it. That's the thought behind Freneo. If you own a business, you're very dedicated to your business. You want it to be successful, and so your mindset is intensive toward that one objective. If you have a hobby or a craft, or maybe you have grandchildren or children, those things that you're focused on, that's what Freneo is capturing the thought behind. So here's the way I understand it theologically. God the Son is of such a phreneo, of such an attitude, that one existing before time through whom all things exist, that one willingly emptied himself of his status in the glory of heaven in order to become one of us, to live among us, and to die for us that he might be resurrected for us. If you agree with that, say amen. That's a theological description of Philippians chapter 2. And what you just heard is confirmed in other places in the Bible, like this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. That's God the Father made God the Son. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. Not as though He forced Him, but that was the outcome, that He took sin upon Him so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, here's your second Greek word. I promise you, I'm not trying to dump a bunch of foreign words on you this morning, and there's only a couple more. But catch this one. When you're called the righteousness of God, this next Greek word that comes up, dikosuneo, 
It's talking about equity of character. So that when God sees you right now, you're sitting in this auditorium today, you're at home watching, you're in some location, maybe you're at work watching. If you're a believer in Jesus, the Bible is saying that when God looks at you right now and He sees your soul, He sees the righteousness of Jesus. That is an incredible thought. The incredible truth that when God sees us, He sees the equity of character. In the same way that Jesus is righteous, we're made righteous. And that's what that word is capturing. But that action on the part of God the Son, that action on the part of Jesus, it required a total surrender of self. And the result of that action is this. If we, if we choose to follow Him, if we follow Him as Lord and Savior, the Bible says that when God sees you, He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And so Paul captured it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, the new things have come. And I would say that's pretty fantastic news. How about you? Fantastic. That's why it's called the good news. That's why it's called the gospel. And you might think that's a really complicated way of explaining it. It is kind of a complicated way of explaining it, but God put it in Scripture so that we would know it, so that we would understand it for these reasons. As a follower of Jesus, assuming that you are, as a follower of Jesus, we're called to model Jesus by having that same attitude in our mind, the same attitude that He exemplified. So go back to where we started, Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that church is a critical component of your walk with God. That you would personally be willing to set aside and put aside what you might consider to be your own interest in order to embrace God's interest. And the New Testament is full of examples of individuals who did exactly that. Peter thought that he would become an active individual in his family's fishing industry. His mindset was toward that industry. And then Jesus comes along, he meets Jesus, and Jesus says, you think you're good at what you do? You're good at what you do, Peter, but I'm going to make you better. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And Peter's destiny is reset. Paul believed and understood and trained educationally to be a lawyer of lawyers, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he set aside his law pursuits so that he could chase after Jesus. The New Testament is replete with examples, but the very best example Paul calls out in Philippians 2 when he says the ultimate example of that is Jesus. He put aside everything and he emptied himself of his positional privilege. So here it is one last time, Philippians 2. But emptied himself, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, you might be thinking, how in the world does this relate to Joseph in Genesis chapter 41? That would be a good question. And I want you to understand how these things relate. I firmly believe, because I know human nature, I are one, I get it. I firmly believe that Joseph's original mindset was this. I have to get back. I have to get back to my dad. I have to get back to my family's household. I'm not supposed to be here. 
I have to get back to where things got off the rails. He has no idea that his family, especially his dad, thinks he's dead. Human nature is to want to get back to where things got off the rails. And we get a glimpse of Joseph's mindset when we go back to Genesis 40. Just think back with me a few weeks to when Joseph made this statement. He's still in the dungeon in Genesis 40. And he's talking to the butler, the chief steward, and he says this in Genesis 40, verse 15, I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. And you're getting a window into the mind of someone who's in their mid-twenties, who's thinking, he's very aware that there's been an injustice done to him. He's very aware that he's been falsely accused. And what's revealed in his mid-twenties thinking is this, my destiny was supposed to be something else. I didn't plan for this. I'm not supposed to be here. But somewhere over time, during the course of those last two years in the dungeon, God dealt with his attitude. Something changed in him because he discovers that God's plans for him far exceeded his own understanding. God's plans went far beyond what he was thinking. It probably, I'm just speculating, but it probably wasn't until he got dragged before Pharaoh, as you saw last week in the details. At that point, he obviously began realizing this is a much larger scope of a plan than what I ever understood. You'll see coming up in a couple of weeks that he fully understood exactly what was going on. The light bulbs went on. So there's a principle in Scripture that I understand related to where Joseph is at right at this moment in time. And the principle is this. I, I learned this when I was in my early 30s. Lori and I were going through a Bible study together, and this reality jumped off the page that we, as followers of Christ, are supposed to be looking for where God is at work and join Him in His work. But that's contrary to our mindset. Our very American mindset is an entrepreneurial mindset in which we would say, I want to go out and launch blank. God, would you come alongside me and bless it? But the Bible describes a master-servant relationship in which he's the master, we're the servant. Where do you find anywhere in society in which the servant goes to the master and tells the master what he's going to do? The master-servant relationship requires that the servant comes before the master and says, what do you want me to do? And that biblical principle of joining God in His work jumps off the pages, which means for you this. Our responsibility is to be looking for where God is working around us. What are the God activities going on around you? Unfortunately, because we naturally want to pursue our own interest, we tend to ignore the God moments going on around us because typically one of two things are going on. We're either caught up in looking back at our past and regretting where things got off the rails, regretting what we missed out on, or we're caught up in thinking about what's next, what's coming, the next rung of the ladder that we haven't yet arrived at. And our human nature mindset is this, if I could just get to that space, if I could just get to blank, then I could really do something. Missing what's going on around us. 
See, Paul is writing in Philippians 2 about thinking bigger and asking ourselves the question, how might I be used of God right now? How might I be used of God right where I'm at? What does God want to do through me on this rung of the ladder? And I'm not necessarily talking about you changing your occupation. For some, it might result in using more of your talents and more of your time in a deliberate way to advance the work of the kingdom. For some, it might mean being more generous financially. It could take place in many forms in your life. I understand that it takes place in the way of seasons and stages in your life. Check it this way. When Joseph was a slave, when he was faithful to the place that God put him in, that's when God released him to the next thing. When Joseph was faithful in the dungeon and did the things that God assigned him to do, that's when God released him and then God moved him on. And when I mean faithful, I mean faithful to use his abilities to honor God in everything that he did. In other words, he was faithful to the present assignment as opposed to looking for that next thing. So ultimately, as we read the story, we find that Joseph put aside his original plans and he embraced the destiny that God had for him, which required an attitude, an attitude adjustment, a phroneo. So clearly, as you study this story, you find that Joseph had expectations. He had a set of expectations regarding what he believed was going to happen, and that's normal. He started out as a 17-year-old when he was kidnapped. And according to our understanding, his thinking was, I'm being groomed to take over Jacob Incorporated. I've got the title, I've got the coat, I've got the management position, I've got the family name, and he's upwardly mobile in his attitude, and God strips all of that from him in order to reshape him into the thing that God wants him to be. Because God's design is for something much, much greater. We actually even find out that God wants to bring about in Joseph's life the very thing that He promised Abraham. Think all the way back with me to Genesis chapter 12. Remember this statement? And I will bless those who bless you, and, I, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, Genesis 12.3. God wants to bring about a portion of that in Joseph's life. So let's transition into this story where we left off at last week. There's some details we didn't get to. And some of the details help you put the pieces of the story together. Joseph is now walking and talking and dressing like an Egyptian. He's actually thinking for the Egyptians. And he's put together a strategy for them. Archaeologists and philosophers, they tell us at this point in time in Egypt's history, in ancient Egypt, this, by the way, is the Middle Kingdom when this is taking place. At this time in the world of the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, it could be compared to no other nation on earth, financially, militarily, politically, educationally. It had everything. The wealth of that kingdom was unlimited. And over that is what Joseph has been put in charge of. We find in verse 41, Pharaoh gives him the institution of this position. Look with me again. Chapter 41, verse 41. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. So I told you last week, this is like the position of prime minister in our world. They, they called him a vizier. And as a vizier, he had very specific responsibilities. He's the supervisor of the government, but he also determines who gets in to see Pharaoh and who doesn't get in to see Pharaoh. But he's also responsible for all the building programs, so he's like the general contractor. And he's responsible to see over all the industry because this is a state-run economy. Along with that, he receives foreign visitors as they come into the kingdom. And important to Joseph's role for our story, he's also over the agricultural industry. So he has a huge, huge job description. But all these things place him precisely in the position in which he can care for God's people in the midst of a famine. So if Joseph's brothers show up, they naturally have to go see the office of the vizier or his representatives, and they have to appear before him. So this son of Jacob, he now has much wealth, much authority, much power, and he looks like it. He's got the royal garments. He's got the sparkly jewels. He's got the car. He wears the king's ring. And he's got a security detail that goes before him telling people, you better bow down. You better get on your knees. And then we get this information in verse 45. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath-Paneah and gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. That happens because in Pharaoh's mind, Joseph is now Egyptian. In American history, we have the knowledge that in the American Indian tribes, when they wanted to take a European settler into their tribe and receive them, they would make them a blood brother. And you've probably seen this acted out in some Westerns you've watched where there was a slicing of the fingers or of the hands and they would mingle the blood together to call that person a true blood brother. This is very similar to what's going on here. They're making him an honorary Egyptian. And in response to that, Joseph gets a gift. And the gift that he gets is an Egyptian wife. And her name is Asenath. And her daddy is a priest. And that little detail in that verse shows us just how highly favored Joseph is because priests, they're at the pinnacle of society. There is no higher position other than Pharaoh. So the priests are at the very top of culture. And Asenath, we're told in that verse, He's, she's got a dad, and her dad is the priest of the city, and he's the priest of the city of An, which is a very important part of Egyptology, because in the city of An is where everybody went to worship Ra, the sun god, small g. But the sun god, Ra, was the highest god of all the gods of their land. So Joseph is being linked up with a woman who's the daughter of the priest of Ra, and priests are very, very powerful. And now Joseph has an Egyptian wife, which strengthens his relationships with the political leaders of Egypt. And Pharaoh knew this intimately. And knowing this intimately, he made a really strategic move, a highly strategic move, by giving Joseph the daughter of the priest of On, because On is also the educational center of all of Egypt. 
that's where all the professors live. So if you want to be connected with the who's who's who of society, and you want to be in the most up-and-coming city, you get connected with the city of On, and Joseph is very well connected here. We come into verse 46. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. So verse 46 is telling us that he's now starting his job. He shows up Monday morning at 7 o'clock for the first day of work. And he decides, I'm going to survey the country. So he gets out on his chariot, and he decides to go through all the land of Egypt. Just two images we're going to put on the screen for you this morning. One is of an Egyptian chariot. And this particular Egyptian chariot belonged to King Tut. My wife and I went to a museum a couple of years ago, Grand Rapids Gerald Ford Museum. The King Tut display was publicly available for people to go look at it. One of the things you notice when you get up close to this chariot is that this thing is inlaid with gold. So I'm picturing this. You're in the city, and you see in the Middle Eastern bright blue sky with that sunlight coming down, this chariot coming towards you that is sparkling and flashing because it's got gold all over it. And then there's this entourage that's running around it saying, bow the knee, bow the knee, bow the knee. And Joseph has a lot of horsepower with his chariot. Okay, you guys didn't get that, did you? <laughs> Literally. He's got, okay, never mind. We'll go off in a different section. First service got it. Ha <laughs> ha. The next image I want you to see is an artist rendition of what life was like for people during the seven years of bounty. Artists have captured this imagery because when there's plenty in the land, people celebrate. And at this time, people celebrated loud with lots of color, lots of dance, lots of music, because they were thrilled with the status of their society. And over all of this is this new chief administrator, over this highly advanced society. And at the very beginning of his tenure, right at the start of the first seven years, Joseph is experiencing incredible prosperity exactly as he dreamed. Go with me to the next verse, 47. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up great grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it for it was beyond measure, meaning there's no way to calculate it. The, the Hebrew language brings forth this description in which the earth is just bringing forth gushing handfuls. You could reach into piles of grain, and it was just running through your hands like water. There, there was so much abundance. So Joseph has taken on this responsibility to tax the people. 20% of this abundance is going into the storehouses. So apparently these huge storage facilities are being built, and they're not out in the country. The verse just said they're, they're right in the city. In every city are these massive silo units. But verse 49 also tells us that Joseph was very detailed, and he had a record-keeping system. But there came a point when even his record-keeping system wouldn't work because there was so much abundance, they stopped even counting. So if you will, the grain silos are bursting at the seams because when our God chooses to bless, He really blesses. He knows exactly how to do that. And then we come almost to a false stop because there's this very crucial detail 
that shows you why I wanted you to see Philippians 2 linked with Genesis 41. It comes from this next section. Verse 50, look with me. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. I'm acutely aware that God did not have to move Moses to write that down, but he did it for a reason. There's detail there that he wants us to know. There's an important flow to what God's doing in Joseph's life. We noticed first in verse 51 that he called his firstborn son Manasseh, which in Hebrew means making to forget. So we need to understand how this is being stated here because he's saying God has made me forget. And we need to understand he's not saying in the sense of putting it completely out of his mind so that he doesn't even remember his brother's name so he can't remember what his dad looks like. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about in the sense of healing a wound. A wound that was so open and so gaping in his life, he hadn't yet moved past it. But he recognized when his firstborn son is born that God has done some healing in his heart, and he has moved past it. So in verse 51, he says, God has made me to forget all my trouble and all my father's household. I just want to bear down on the word trouble for a moment. It's a Hebrew word, amal, and it means severe, severe treatment. That happened when he was a slave. That happened in the dungeon when they tortured him. That kind of physical infliction, but he links that together with not just the severe treatment that happened to him when he was a slave. He links that with also my father's household because that wasn't about so much physical treatment as it was the breaking of the heart that his brothers would abandon him and sell him into slavery. So he's saying, I had, I had some really grievous things happen to me, but God has allowed me to put that grief behind me. And then comes verse 52 with the other name, Ephraim. And Ephraim is very interesting because it's just like Manasseh. Go back to what I said just a moment ago, that he walks like an Egyptian, he talks like an Egyptian, he dresses like an Egyptian, he thinks for the Egyptians, he's driving an Egyptian chariot but he chooses Hebrew names for his sons. He hasn't given up. He's drawing in the names from his childhood and from his memory, and Ephraim means to be double-fruited. The Hebrew, in the original context, is saying to us, not Egyptian, the reason in Hebrew that I can name him Ephraim is because God has made me fruitful. Now, as a spectator, we're in 2023, we'd be looking at this and saying, wow, this guy has been elevated to the good life. He has things really going on for him. But you notice in the midst of the, the good life, he's living large, he still says, this is happening in the land of my affliction. God has made me fruitful, but it's happening in this place where all these bad things happen to me. So he still views Egypt as the land of his affliction, 
Look with me again, verse 52, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In other words, saying, this is a great place. You guys have an advanced society, but this is where I really, really struggled also. And it is so easy to misinterpret what's going on in chapter 41 right here. There is this intentional structure in this flow. I really, really need to press down on this and press hard on it. Because God's doing in his life what he's done in your life. God's working in Joseph's life even though Joseph necessarily can't always see it. And it's happening during the seven years of prosperity for him. The first thing that I notice is going on is there's been this release of bitterness. He's come to the place where he can let it go, where he can put his past in his past. If you will, God has allowed him to be manassed. That's what the name means, to be forgetful of my past things. And then, after that first thing is done, after he has released the bitterness, then came the opportunity to be prosperous and to be fruitful. So first, he had to deal with the hurts. He had to let those things go. And we noticed that he let God do that for him because we can't do that on our own. So God has made me to forget, and God has made me fruitful. Joseph recognizes it wasn't in his ability, but God gave him that capacity to let go and move ahead. And with this attitude, with this phreneo, with this mindset, once that issue is resolved, Joseph can move ahead, and then he can tend to the future. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're in the Egypt of your life. And it feels like you're in the land of your affliction. And perhaps you've been thinking, there was a better time in my life. There was a better place. I'd rather be there. I want to go back to when things got off the rails. So there's this nagging desire, perhaps, within you to what could have been or... You want a different objective. You want to be on the next rung of the ladder because you want something different than what has become of your current situation. Well, let me return to the earlier question that Paul asked. What are you doing right now? What are you doing with where you're at on this rung of the ladder? First of all, have you given that burden over to God? Have you allowed God to work on you and remove that? And then ask yourself the question, what am I doing today with this day that I've been given? Today. Apply this to Joseph's story. He's living with a pagan wife. He's living in a pagan culture. Everything around him is pagan. But he still honors God in all of his choices. That his sons get these Hebrew names tells us he hasn't adopted the Egyptian religion. He's still following the one true God. So he's of them, he's living among them, but he's making very deliberate life choices to honor God. So his phreneo, his attitude, his mindset has conformed to what God is doing with him where he's at right in that moment. So we're not looking at a Joseph that's longing to be back with his dad any longer. We're looking at a Joseph who's accepted that God's working through him right where he's at, verse 53. 
When the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph has said, there was famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. In verses 53 and 54, they validate exactly what Joseph had been saying was going to happen. Seven years of massive abundance and then seven years of famine. And it's all the way through the lands we're reading, which means it's far-reaching. It goes way beyond the borders of Egypt. And because the other regions didn't plan for it, they quickly ran out of food supply. But way back in Egypt, Pharaoh's got a, a, he's got a, a way to fix this. He's got a Joseph in his camp. So he says, go to Joseph. Those seven years of abundance have not spoiled him. This is a guy who's got a plan. So verse 56, when the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. And it's describing the known world, the civilized world. It's not necessarily describing North America or describing Asia. It's describing the Middle East. All the people of the populations of those kingdoms, they start hightailing it for Egypt. The famine was so severe that it set the stage for Joseph's brothers to show up. So Egypt has enjoyed these seven years of bumper crops. 20% of it is taken aside and it's put into the big silos. But the famine has devastated the Middle East and that, that scorching wind, that harsh east wind we learned about a couple weeks ago is just obliterating all the crops. And I don't even know if it went on for the full seven years, but whatever it did, it baked the ground like clay. And the result is refugees begin streaming in from other regions into Egypt. And they are not coming to see the pyramids. They're coming because they're desperate. The families are starving. So I do wonder, and I'm kind of speculating, I do wonder if Joseph anticipated that his brothers would show up. I do wonder if he began thinking, as people came in from other nations, are they going to show up too? Here comes verse 1 of chapter 42. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? <laughs> Sorry, if you don't see the humor in Scripture, I do. But it's like, come on, you guys. Get off the stump. Verse 2, he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. And so begins the greatest drama of this entire story. And if you think you've seen drama so far, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till you see this unfold. When these broken relationships, these festering wounds of this divided home all come together under one roof. But that's for next week. Come on, you know the story. It's not like you've never heard it before. Okay, let me just zoom out for a moment. Living in our era in 2023, it is very, very easy to misinterpret Genesis 41. And we could easily impose the concept of a success experience on Joseph. What do I mean by that? I mean, it looks like 
it looks like this guy won the lottery. Like, wow, he is living large. He's living the good life. And you could be tempted to see the events surrounding Pharaoh's dream as the lucky break of Joseph's life. And Americans especially could finally conclude, wow, it's about time. He broke the bad chain of events going on in his life. But to do so, to do that, to have that mindset implies that all the events that happened to Joseph were out from under God's control. All those things God was sovereign over. All those things God was working through. So I would encourage you this way to have a mindset. Rather, see the difficult circumstances as the God moments. When God was working around him and he was invited to join God in his work, to bring the full bear of his abilities into the situation that he was in, to be part of the scope of God's unfolding eternal plan. The biblical reality, church, is this. God invites us. He allows us. And I do mean that. He allows us as His creation to be involved in His eternal plan. Are we worthy of it? No. Does He let us do it? Absolutely. How we respond is a choice. So, so Paul approaches it that way when he's writing Philippians. He's saying, think bigger than the circumstances you're in. How might I be used of where I am right now? How might God want to put me to work? So he says in Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who didn't think it was equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself because there was something bigger going on. Paul's writing that there needs to be a match in your life. You're a follower of Jesus. What you say about yourself has to match the way you're living. That's what Philippians 2 is really driving at. And he writes that because of this encouraging reality. He writes that because today, this day, is a new beginning for you. God's mercies are new every morning. Say amen if you agree with that. They are. You get a new beginning every single day. And so that same Paul also writes this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come for you. It's almost like Paul studied the story of Joseph. The old things were gone. New things have been ushered in. What's your attitude around those things? I'm encouraging us as a church, I'm encouraging you personally to make this an item of prayer this year. Asking yourself this question as you go out the door. What does God want to do through me right now on this rung of the ladder? right where I'm at, and I'm going to pray for us that way. Let's pray together. Father, I pray earnestly, for myself included, every single soul, that we would embrace the biblical truth that you have made us righteous, and when you see us, you see the righteousness of Jesus. Praise you, God, for that. It's amazing. So we thank you and we acknowledge that reality. But at the same time, Father, many times we disqualify ourselves. And because of our past experiences, we think that you don't want to use us. Or many times just out of laziness, we check out. 
So, Father, I would ask that you would help us to earnestly, earnestly look at ourselves and evaluate whether or not we're really walking the talk. God, I ask that would happen through the power of the Holy Spirit, that as you superintend over our lives, that we would be willing to take an honest evaluation of ourselves and ask if we have the right attitude because we are a new creation. We do praise you for that. We praise you for that reality. Thank you. So we ask for this in confidence that you would desire that for us. It's right there in your word. So God, I ask for your blessing on each individual who spent time today studying your word, that you would send us out the door with your blessing, and that we would see these things take hold in our life. Use us for the name of Jesus, for his kingdom, for his sake, and for his glory. He's worthy of all the energy we can give to it. And we do ask this in the matchless name of our soon coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.